On July 25, 1956, two large ships collide off the coast of Nantucket, Massachusetts, killing 51 people. 59 years later, on July 21, 2015, this shipwreck would take yet another life. What happened in 1956 that caused these two large ships to collide, and how did the shipwreck claim the life of an experienced wreck diver 59 years later? Find out on this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Hi everyone, I'm your host Alex, and welcome back to Narcosis Into the Deep. This week I have another exciting story to share with you, and thank you so much to Imgur user jsmith23 for suggesting this topic. This week I'm going to tell you about the collision and sinking of the SS Andrea Doria, and about an experienced wreck diver who would later lose his life 59 years after the sinking. So first, let's talk about the Andrea Doria. At the end of World War II, Italy had lost half its merchant fleet through wartime destruction and allied forces seeking war compensations, and to show the world that the country had recovered from the war and to re-establish the nation's pride, the Italian line commissioned two new vessels of similar design in the early 1950s. The first of these two ships was to be named after a 16th century admiral from Genoa, Italy, named Andrea Doria. The Andrea Doria was an ocean liner measuring 697 feet or 212 meters long. The ship had two steam turbines attached to twin screws or propellers that allowed it to achieve a top speed of 26 knots or about 29 miles per hour or 46 kilometers per hour. While the Andrea Doria was neither the fastest nor the largest ship in its day, it was designed to be very luxurious. It accommodated three different classes, totaling up to 1,241 passengers. Each class, first, cabin, and tourist, had their own dining rooms, lounges, designated open deck space, and swimming pool. Over a million dollars was spent just on the artwork and the decor of the cabins and public bathrooms. Factoring in inflation, a million dollars in the 1950s is roughly $9.7 million in 2021, and that's spent on just the artwork and decor. For safety, the Andrea Doria had eight steel lifeboats on either side of the ship, totaling 16 lifeboats altogether. The ship was also equipped with radar and a double hull divided into 11 watertight compartments. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the construction of ships, you probably don't know what a double hole means. And to oversimplify it, I want you to think of a double-walled Tervis tumbler or any other double-walled cup. The double-wall insulation in that cup is made by inserting a liner inside the outer shell, creating a layer of air in between them. A double hull on the ship is almost the same thing, however while the cup's purpose of the double layer is for insulation, the ship's double hull is used as a redundant barrier to seawater in case the outer hull or wall is damaged and leaks. So on top of the double hull, the Andrea Doria also had 11 watertight compartments inside that double hull. And the purpose of this is so that the entire hull isn't compromised if only a small section gets damaged and leaks. However, even with safety in mind, the Andrea Doria had major flaws regarding its seaworthiness. 
During the maiden voyage of the Andrea Doria, the ship developed a huge list when it was hit by a large wave off of Nantucket, Massachusetts. A list is the degree of which a vessel leans or tilts to either side when it's resting at equilibrium with no external forces acting upon it. So picture a ship sitting in the water during a calm day and it's awkwardly leaning to one side. That's what a list is. Listing is usually caused by the off-centerline distribution of weight on board either due to uneven loading or to flooding. And by contrast, a roll is the dynamic movement from side to side caused by waves. So if a listing ship goes beyond the point where a riding movement will keep it afloat, it'll capsize and potentially sink. So a list when you have a lot of big waves out in the open ocean can be very dangerous. The Andrea Doria listed 28 degrees after being hit by that large wave off of Nantucket during its maiden voyage on January 14, 1953. It was also found that the ship's tendency to list was accentuated when the fuel tanks were nearly empty, which can occur at the end of a voyage. Now, I tried to look up any information on if anything was done to correct or fix this prior to the accident in 1956, but I couldn't find any information. If there's no exterior damage to the ship and the listing was caused by just an uneven distribution of weight or low fuel tanks, it's possible that no one really did anything about it. They probably just unloaded the boat, refueled it, and the listing corrected itself so they left it alone. Now, this is just my educated guess, at least, since I couldn't find any information. On July 17, 1956, the Andrea Doria set sail, leaving Genoa, Italy on a nine-day trip to New York. On board were about 1,706 people, including passengers and crew members. Eight days into their trip, at about 10.45 p.m. on July 25th, as the ship sailed south of Nantucket, its radar noted an approaching vessel the MS Stockholm, some 17 nautical miles away. The Swedish passenger liner, which was traveling from New York to Gothenburg, Sweden, soon detected the Andrea Doria on its radar. Both the Andrea Doria and the MS Stockholm made adjustments in their course in an effort to widen the passing distance. However, each ship mistook the other's actual course and the Andrea Doria was traveling in a heavy fog that the Stockholm would soon encounter, and mistakes were made when reading the radar. At a distance of approximately two nautical miles apart, the liners finally established visual contact, and it soon became apparent that they were heading toward each other, and traveling at a combined speed of 40 knots, or 46 miles, or 74 kilometers per hour, they were unable to make the necessary adjustments to avoid collision. At approximately 11.10 p.m., the Stockholm and the Andrea Doria collided at almost a 90-degree angle. The Stockholm struck the starboard side of the Andrea Doria, penetrating nearly 40 feet or 12 meters deep, opening seven of its 11 watertight compartments. While the Stockholm's bow was crushed, the Swedish liner remained seaworthy. The Andrea Doria, however, was fatally damaged. Within minutes of the collision, the Andrea Doria began to list hard to the starboard side, rendering the lifeboats on the port side inaccessible. The design parameters of the Andrea Doria allowed the lowering of lifeboats at a maximum of 15 degrees list. 
But since the Andrea Doria exceeded 20 degrees within minutes after the collision, it was now well beyond its limit and half of the lifeboats could not be deployed. This severe list also pulled a good section of the ship under the level of the water, allowing seawater to flow down corridors, down stairwells, and any other way it could find into the next compartment in line. On the Andrea Doria, the decision to abandon ship was made within 30 minutes of impact. Procedures called for lowering the lifeboats to be fastened along the glass-enclosed promenade deck, or one deck below, where the evacuees could step out of the windows directly into the boats, which would then be lowered into the water. To make matters worse, the list also complicated normal lifeboat procedures on the starboard side. Instead of lowering the lifeboats at the side of the promenade deck and then lowering them into the water, it was necessary to lower the boats all the way to the water empty and then somehow get the evacuees down the exterior of the ship to the water level to board the lifeboats. Distress signals were sent out by each ship and it was made clear that more lifeboats were urgently needed. Throughout the collision and the aftermath, 51 total people had lost their lives, 46 from the Andrea Doria and 5 from the Stockholm. Once the evacuation was complete, the captain of the Andrea Doria shifted his attention to the possibility of towing the ship to shallow water. However, it was clear to those watching helplessly at the scene that the stricken ocean liner was doomed. It was recorded that the Andrea Doria finally sank bow first 10 hours after the collision at about 10.09 a.m. on July 26, 1956. And a little fun fact, Harry A. Trask from the Boston Traveler captured an aerial photo of the sinking Andrea Doria and it won a Pulitzer Prize in 1957. I'm going to post this photo on our Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, if you'd like to take a look at it. An investigation was completed into this collision, and heavy fog was given as the primary cause of the accident. However, other factors were also cited, another main one being that the Andrea Doria's officers had not followed proper radar procedures or used the plotting equipment available in the chart room, which was adjacent to the bridge of their ship, to plot and then calculate the course, position, and speed of the other approaching ship. Thus, these officers failed to realize the Stockholm's speed and course. The Andrea Doria also had not followed the long-established rule that vessels approaching head-to-head should both turn starboard or to the right, and as the Stockholm turned starboard, the Andrea Doria turned to port or to the left. Since the Stockholm turned right and the Andrea Doria turned left, this actually closed the circle instead of opening it. Beyond a certain point, it became impossible to avoid a collision. The Andrea Doria-Stockholm collision led to several rule changes in the immediate years following the accident to avoid a recurrence. Since this was essentially a radar-assisted collision event in which overuse was made of poorly handled technology, shipping lines were required to improve training on the use of radar equipment. Also, approaching ships were required to make radio contact with one another. Both ships saw each other on their radar systems and attempted to turn, but neither attempted to make radio contact with the other. Unfortunately, one of the radar systems was poorly designed, resulting in the collision and marine vessels today are required to turn starboard or right in any head-on situation. 
After the Andrea Doria sank, it came to rest at about 250 feet or 76 meters underwater. And that's where our next story begins. Are you searching for a new true crime podcast to listen to? Then search no further than Military True Crime Addict. David Kokish walks you through a plethora of actual military true crime stories that have never been reported on by news outlets or media. Each episode features a detailed account of true crime that in some way relates to our military, veterans, and their extended families. There will also be an abundance of episodes on serial killers with a military background that you will not believe. Military True Crime Addict provides a voice to victims so you can hear their side of the story and it raises awareness for the terrible crimes and those most impacted. You don't need to know anything about the military to enjoy this podcast, so what are you waiting for? Go listen to Military True Crime Addict now. Due to the luxurious appointments and initially good condition of the wreck, the Andrea Doria has been a frequent target of treasure divers. However, the wreck has aged and deteriorated extensively, with the hole now fractured and collapsed. The upper decks have slowly slid off the wreck into the seabed below, and as a result of this transformation, a large debris field flows out from the hole of the liner. As the ship slowly deteriorates, the once popular access points frequented by divers, such as one known as the Gimbel's Hole, no longer exist. Divers call Andrea Doria a noisy wreck as it emits various noises due to the continual deterioration and the currents moving broken metal around inside the hole. However, due to this decay, new access areas are constantly opening up for future divers on the ever-changing wreck. Since the sinking in 1956, at least 22 scuba divers have lost their lives while diving this wreck. Today, we're covering the death of Tom Pritchard. Tom Pritchard was a 64-year-old retired Penn State professor. He picked up scuba diving as a hobby later in life, but was well experienced at the time of this event. He first dove in Australia in 2001, and that's when he caught the diving bug. As Tom advanced through recreational diving and into technical diving, he pursued more challenging goals, traveling the eastern seaboard and eventually visiting the Andrea Doria several times. Friends of Tom say that he wasn't a daredevil, and he was always very conscious of the safety risks. He was meticulous about his equipment and his gear, and with about a thousand dives under his belt, Tom had a reputation for careful preparation and attention to detail. Two days before he dived, Tom and a diving buddy drove about six hours from Pennsylvania to Rhode Island, where a dive boat named the John Jack had been docked. Tom was on board as part of the John Jack's crew, intending to work and dive on back-to-back -back Andrea Doria trips. But on Monday, after a rocky overnight run to the Andrea Doria site, Tom wasn't feeling up to the challenging dive. Since he hadn't had enough sleep and wasn't feeling 100%, he made the right decision of not diving that day. Instead, he helped others ready their equipment and seal up their suits. But the next day, on Tuesday, July 21st, 2015, Tom felt much better. He and his two diving buddies, Sean Sweeney and Terry Martzel, loaded on their rebreathers and began their descent to the Andrea Doria. 
One of the chains attaching a mooring line to the framed wreck of the Andrea Doria had come loose and Tom, Sean, and Terry went to secure it. Tom held on to the mooring line as he descended down to about 200 feet or 61 meters below the surface. As you're probably well aware at this point, at this depth, oxygen becomes toxic, so Tom's rebreather controller adjusted the gas mixture for him. Tom's using a trimix gas, and as we discussed in earlier episodes, a trimix contains three gases, oxygen, nitrogen, and helium. The addition of helium is important on these deep dives since it's an inert gas and doesn't react with our bodies the same way that oxygen or nitrogen does. Deep diving, using trimix gas, and using a rebreather all require special training. But for all the preparation and advanced equipment, divers have only a few minutes to explore the Andrea Doria. The more time divers spend breathing the specially tailored mix of gases required to survive at such depths, the longer they have to spend making their way painstakingly back to the surface. A typical Andrea Doria dive includes only about 15 or 16 minutes exploring the wreck before divers must leave. During those few minutes, divers affix strobe lights to the mooring line to help find their way back. Some hook lines of their own, wound into reels on their equipment, onto the wreck near the mooring line so they can find their way back when their time in the wreck runs out. Some of those who have died got tangled or lost in the wreck. Others have panicked and spit out their mouthpieces and drowned. But most make their way back to the mooring line and start their long, slow ascent back to the surface. Every minute at the bottom increases decompression time dramatically. For a dive of a typical duration, the return to the surface requires about an hour, with stops nearly every 10 feet pausing for precisely timed intervals. These divers are aware of one of the most well-known diving side effects, decompression sickness, aka the bends. Foot by foot, divers make their way towards the surface, lightly gripping the line. Keeping a consistent depth in the water can be kind of hard. The current can be strong and the boat can be bobbing up and down, moving the line, as divers wait out each decompression stop. But after about 75 minutes in the water, Sean and Terry make it back to the John Jack. It only took moments to realize that Tom was missing. According to others on board, Terry said that he thought he saw Tom at the 20-foot decompression stop just a few moments before. Tom, Terry had told them, had signaled to him and headed up to the boat. Terry frantically got his suit back on and plunged into the water looking for his friend below the boat. When there was no sign of Tom below, they radioed the Coast Guard for help. While one person radioed for the Coast Guard, others began throwing trash overboard. It's kind of a way to track the current and to give search and rescuers a trail to follow in case Tom was somewhere along the surface. And within just three minutes, the Coast Guard was in the air above the John Jack. The visibility that day was about a mile, and the crew members of the John Jack said that if Tom had resurfaced behind the boat, they would have seen him. But under the surface, two divers were still diving at the wreck. They approached the mooring line, reached for their strobe lights, and noticed a third strobe light still attached to the line. Looking at the back of it, they saw the initials TCP, Tom C. Pritchard. The divers progressed through their necessary decompression stops, aware that whoever left that strobe on the line may have been lost in the wreck. More than an hour after Tom went missing, 
The two divers finally emerged and reported seeing the strobe light with his initials clipped to the line. By then, the search at the surface, based on Terry's account of seeing Tom just below the boat, was already well underway. But if Terry had instead seen Sean, who surfaced a few moments before him, then Tom may have never left the Andrea Doria. One of the divers said that, quote, being on a rebreather, this guy could be alive and caught in a net, end quote. He asked to go down and search for Tom, but the boat's two captains, owner Rich Benevento and Mark Alexander, declined to allow anyone to go down and look for Tom. Coast Guard officials said that the decision to keep everyone on the boat was, while difficult, likely wise. A local diver later told a newspaper that had he been a diver on the John Jack that day, he would have wanted to go down and look for Tom. But had he been the captain of the boat, he wouldn't have allowed a passenger to take that risk. The weather conditions were slowly deteriorating and the John Jack's ladder broke off while the boat was tooling around the dive site and an aluminum ladder had been attached to the diving platform, making boarding the boat tricky. Risking more divers to search for Tom may have been unwise. About 40 hours after the Coast Guard arrived, the search was called off. Over 350 square nautical miles had been searched, and if Tom ever surfaced, nobody saw him. Richie Kohler, who's a wreck diver and a shipwreck historian who's also led his own Andrea Doria expeditions on the John Jack, said he asked to tag along on the John Jack's subsequent trips to the Andrea Doria to search for Tom's body, but he was rebuffed. Richie, who's dove the wreck over 120 times, said, quote, I have a problem with that. You can at least do some kind of diligence to bring him home, end quote. But Coast Guard Petty Officer Ross Ruddle said the captain's choice not to send more divers down after Tom was, quote, probably a smart decision on his part. He didn't want to risk the lives of anyone else, end quote. What precisely happened to Tom may never be known for sure. Whether an equipment failure or medical emergency incapacitated him inside the wreck or something else entirely different, the array of diving dangers can seem as vast as the sea itself. If Tom never left the Andrea Doria, a diver may one day discover him on another expedition. But for now, somewhere near the Andrea Doria, Tom Pritchard is buried far below the waves. Why people dive at this location can be answered in a couple different ways. Some enjoy the challenge. Some go down just to simply kneel on the historic ship and say they made it. Others rummage through the wreck in search of mementos, and every once in a while, someone gets lucky. In 2010, two divers from New Jersey unearthed a 75-pound bell that once adorned the Andrea Doria's deck. The skills and equipment required to successfully execute this dive stretch beyond the limits of recreational diving. Tech training and specially mixed gas is required to reach this underwater treasure. However, even with all that extra training and specialized gear, this wreck is still very, very dangerous. Strong currents and heavy sediment that can easily reduce visibility to zero pose serious hazards to diving at this site. Dr. Robert Ballard, who was actually the person who located the sunken Titanic, 
visited the site in a U.S. Navy submersible in 1995 and reported that thick fishing nets draped the hole. An invisible web of fishing lines can easily snag on scuba gear and increases the danger for this dive. The wreck is slowly collapsing, and with each year that passes by, the wreck becomes more and more dangerous due to this deterioration. This wreck is featured in multiple books and movies, so if you'd like to learn more, I highly recommend reading the 2002 book, Deep Descent, Adventure and Death Diving the Andrea Doria by Kevin McMurray, as well as the 2004 book, Shadow Divers by Robert Curson. And another fun fact, the fictional horror movie Ghost Ship features an Italian luxury liner, Antonio Graza, whose design was based on that of the Andrea Doria. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and if you have any questions on this week's episode, you can head over to our Instagram page at NarcosisPod or on our Discord server. Podcast merch is now available, and you can find the merch for sale on our website, NarcosisPod.com. I also set up a Patreon for the podcast, so for just $3 a month or the price of one coffee, you can vote on what to hear next, get exclusive updates, and get a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and get 10% off merchandise. Thank you to my newest patron, Jackson S., for your support. It helps the podcast tremendously. So thank you so much again, and I'll see you all next week.